Today on Middle Ground, Sam brings us a highly impactful story. I hate you. And I talk about one of the scariest possibilities that our generation has perhaps ever faced. And that's saying something. Welcome to Middle Ground on Front Porch Report, where every other week, Sam and I look at local, national, and international stories that have significance for us as Christians. We strive to cut through the noise of ideology and partisanship to focus on what the biblical worldview tells us is really going on. In a world full of left versus right and us versus them, we seek to tease out the nuance of every situation and find the middle ground. Thank you for joining us this week. The report is in. All right, Sam. So as we both know, I kind of live under a rock when it comes to sports news, but you've got a story today that even piques my interest a little bit. Can you tell us about this player for the Las Vegas Raiders, or perhaps I should say former player? Uh, Yes. So this week has brought about some interesting news in the sports world. You had The quarterback of Ohio State get suspended for a driving under the influence charge. And also in the NFL, more specifically, you had a wide receiver of the Las Vegas Raiders. His name is Henry Ruggs III get into a motor vehicle accident while he was intoxicated. Well, both of those are pretty tragic and seem to follow a pattern. What makes the Ruggs case so unique uh well rugs was not only driving while his blood alcohol content was double the legal limit according to nevada state law uh he was also driving prior to the incident at speeds up to 156 miles an hour in his corvette Uh, and according to espn at the time of the collision he was going 127 miles an hour that is ridiculously fast i've been on wide open roads before and gone up over 100 just for the fun of it but you really have to be trying to get up to 156 yeah and he was driving in a sports car Uh, like i said it was a corvette and it definitely uh has the capability of going that fast but uh maybe it doesn't have the necessity and so he he slammed into another car is what happened there Yeah, so again, according to ESPN, who got their source from the police department directly, he collided with a uh, RAV4, and a woman and her dog were in the vehicle. And the collision was with such great impact, it actually burst the vehicle's fuel tank and then ignited the vehicle on fire, uh, leading to the death of both the woman and her dog. Well, that just takes the tragedy up a notch, doesn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, It's also important to know that Ruggs' girlfriend was in the vehicle with him. She uh, sustained injuries that required for her to undergo surgery, and Ruggs himself uh, appeared in court in a wheelchair, likely due to a leg injury from the incident. It just really highlights the fact that small decisions that we make, even after what seems like a good day or maybe a fun night out, can have massive impacts on the world around us and even on the rest of our lives. What what kind of legal situation is Mr. Ruggs going to find himself in after all of this? Yeah, legally he's been a bit of a what could be described as a pickle. 
So he is being charged with DUI causing bodily injury uh, and also with DUI causing death. That's uh, driving under the influence, each of which in the state of Nevada carry a 20-year state prison sentence and neither of which are eligible for probation. And he also has one charge of reckless driving, uh, which if all sentences were served concurrently could add up to 46 years in prison if he's convicted on all three charges. I don't care who you are. That's almost half of your life plus the end of his career and the the ignominy that comes with that you know this is a relatively Mm -hmm. famous person that we're talking about and the celebrity of his personage kind of catapults the story to national attention in addition to the the specifics of the case at 156 miles an hour but you know just this is the kind of thing that could happen to anyone after a couple of bad decisions like i said and it just really points to that that effect of sin in a fallen world, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and Riggs is only 22, so um, his youth probably played into the poor decision-making here. Uh, and I don't say that as an excuse. I just say that to kind of understand well, what's going on. I think we as Christians looking at this have to kind of just look at the dimension of that uh, God abhors partial justice, and God abhors partiality. And so we as Christians kind of have to look at this like you know, we've been talking about in our other podcast, Discovery Bible Study in James, how James sp- spoke about preferential treatment in the church and how we shouldn't show partiality to the rich. And so judgment should not be you know, lenient just because he's a famous athlete or just because he's rich. And so it's important here to, to look at this from a Christian worldview perspective, but also how sin has consequences. And sin, you know, obviously he was quite sinful uh, in, in being this level of intoxicated. But, uh, you know, that's not the only thing he committed. And Tess, you had an interesting point that uh, you can bring up here. Yeah, so sin isn't just, you know, specific actions committed with an intent to harm someone else. It's also... It can be sinful to behave in a way that shows a reckless disregard for someone else's safety or well-being or freedom. And that's really what this case is about, right? You know, he didn't intend to go out and end anyone's life or get in a wreck or injure his girlfriend. But because he behaved in a manner that chose maybe the convenience of driving his own car rather than getting a rideshare service... It really... And you bring up the rideshare service, which is an interesting point. The NFL has stated that they uh, offer free rideshare services for all of their players. Yeah, so if the NFL is providing rideshare services and he still decided to drive his own car while that intoxicated, it's something that's a part of our culture, isn't it? The, the only moral agent that we want to take into account is ourselves. When in reality, every action that we have will have an impact on someone else. And if we are behaving in a way that disregards, like I was talking about, their safety or their security or their liberty, then we're actually sinning against them by not taking them into account. We're meant to be others-centered. We're meant to look outward and see how we can be a benefit or a blessing to other people. And when we become so self-focused that our own freedom, our own fun, our own convenience 
becomes paramount to us, then it's going to lead to things like this. And both sides of the political spectrum have their own little bugaboos where they focus on their own personal freedom over what might be better for the community, whether it be sexual freedom or gun rights freedom. And freedom is a good thing, right? But it can definitely be used in a way that causes harm to other people. And as Christians, we have to be really, really careful about what we are expressing as our rights. Paul even talks about that where he says, I did not enforce my rights to be a paid preacher to you because I cared so much about you and I wanted you to hear the gospel that much. And that's a great example to us as we think about things like this. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was how if for some reason, Ruggs escaped justice here on Earth. If his attorney could find a way to convince a jury to have a not guilty sentence for some reason, uh, we as Christians have to know and understand that uh, there is no escaping full justice, uh, that we believe in a God that punishes sin rightly. And uh, yeah, so to quote Jonathan Pocuto, all sins are paid for either on the cross or in hell for all eternity. And so with that understanding, we, uh, we pray for Mr. Riggs. Uh, based on his actions, it doesn't sound like he knows Jesus, or if he did, he made some poor decisions. And so uh, we pray for him, absolutely, for his soul, and we pray for justice. Uh, we pray for the family members uh, of the young woman he killed, who was just 23, um, and he himself is just 22. And so it's a very tragic situation, but we as Christians need to you know, not, not scream for his head and also not act like he deserves to have nothing happen to him. We can take a balanced middle ground approach. Well, Tasman, speaking of delicate balances, I believe you have a story about a delicate balance that the U.S. has been striking with another global power. Is that correct? Exactly. I found this story in The Atlantic earlier this week. The headline is, What Will Drive China to War? And the subhead is, A Cold War is Already Underway. The question is whether Washington can deter Beijing from initiating a hot one. It's by Michael Beckley and Hal Barans. And I would highly encourage any of our listeners to follow the link in the show notes and go read this article in its entirety. It is a very thorough discussion of the subject of the history of the current Chinese Communist Party and its relationships with other powers, especially the U.S. I learned a lot by reading it, but there are a few elements in this story that I really want to address and talk about. And so I'm going to give a very brief synopsis of certain portions of it, and then we'll talk about that. Uh, Before we get into this, Taz, I don't imagine all of our listenership has a detailed understanding of, say, the last 60 years when it comes to East Asian history and political discourse. Can you give us a, a brief overview of what that's looked like and how that's led up to what we're facing today? Sure. And once again, I want to emphasize that word brief because we could spend a whole episode talking about this and not cover everything important to be covered. But briefly, the Chinese Communist Party 
has been in power since roughly a few years after World War II. Before that, there had been a civil war between what was called the Nationalist Powers and the Communist Powers. The world, the war itself left the Nationalist Powers significantly weakened, which allowed the Communists to sort of take over control, while a sort of shadow government of Nationalist leaders fled to Formosa, and the remnants of that group currently exist in Taiwan. Meanwhile, the Communist Party in China became ascendant, and they have been in power ever since. And what this article talks about is that the tendency of China is to lash out with violence and aggression in an unexpected way whenever they feel backed into a corner, either if their influence is waning, if they are surrounded by perceived enemies, or if they feel that they are in decline or at risk of losing territory. He gives several examples of this over the history of the Chinese Communist Party. The first one, which is closest to home for us in America, is in 1950 during the Korean War. During the Korean War, U.S. forces actually, in cooperation with South Korea, actually managed to take over almost the entire Korean peninsula. But towards the end of that advance, China actually suddenly in surprise attacked and pushed them all the way back down to the bottom of the peninsula again. After a few years of fighting, they eventually kind of came to the borders that we have today where North Korea was a communist power, South Korea was a democratic country, and there is that demilitarized zone between them. And the U.S. actually maintains a military force in South Korea to this day to try to enforce and maintain safety and security for the South Korean government. In 1962, the People's Liberation Army or the Chinese Communist Army attacked some Indian forces in the Himalayan mountains over a border dispute there because they felt threatened by what were seen as Indian advances. And then in the late 70s, there was another attack on Vietnam because there were some Soviet Union forces in Vietnam that had led an attack on Cambodia. And China felt that Cambodia was a close ally and they wanted to lash out at Vietnam because they were feeling surrounded by the U.S., by India, by the Soviet Union. And throughout this whole time period as well, there have been both overt and covert attempts to try to get Taiwan back into the fold of mainland China that have been rebuffed primarily by defensive posture taken by the United States. And so... What we can gather from this history is that whenever China feels like it is being attacked or like it is weakening or losing influence, authority, or territory, they are going to lash out and attack. And the article describes this as an educational exercise, both to the person they're attacking and to anyone else who might feel like they should stand up against China, that this is going to not go well for you and we are going to um, really make life difficult for you if you continue in this. And so the reason why this is relevant is China hasn't really gone into a hot war, as far as we can tell, since around 1988. And one of the reasons for that is there was Nixon's opening of China. There was there's this element where the economy of China opened up and became this sort of booming powerhouse on the global stage. One of the reasons is because of the plentiful cheap labor that companies could get. Companies would set up factories to, you know, create shoes, different products. If you've got something made of plastic, it probably says made in China somewhere on there. And this is an element of that 
sort of economic powerhouse that China has had. And it's also allowed it to become very wealthy for the Chinese Communist Party people in power, not necessarily for the, the people in general, but also to become a military powerhouse in the area. And so it has really given China a lot of influence, which it has used against other countries to kind of coerce them into different frames of action. And in recent decades, that has led to China being considered the major adversary of the United States on the world stage. The Soviet Union has collapsed since the 90s. Russia is still something of a threat under Vladimir Putin, but China is the real the real deal. But since 2007, according to this article, China's economic engine has started to sputter. And one of the reasons for that is that there's an increase in debt, but the workforce is also decreasing. China had a one-child policy at one point, and the result of that was that there is now this group of people, the, an aging workforce that is coming into play, about 130 million senior citizens being gained while there is not a replacement level of young people entering the workforce. And then beyond that, you've also got these international groups that are forming countries like Indonesia, European Union, UK, Australia, United States, that are all kind of working together to try to reduce Chinese influence because those countries feel threatened by Chinese influence on the global stage. And so you've got this waning of Chinese influence, power and economics going on right now. But what this article the point that it makes is that that's actually one of the most dangerous things that can happen because of the history. It means that China is more and more likely to lash out in some way. And he gives a couple of examples of where that might occur. It might be an attack on Japan or on, on Japanese sovereignty, or it might be an attack on Indonesia or on even Taiwanese sovereignty. And all of those are different fronts where there is tension right now, where there is military buildup on both sides. But what I want to talk about is the worldview implications of the United States' relationship with China for Christians who live in the United States. Uh, and Taz, before we kind of dig into that, can you talk about the overarching theological principle that's kind of guided the decision to go to war or not go to war for Christians over, you know, say the past few hundred years? Mm-hmm. Originally, Christians felt that they had to be pacifists. They would look at the words of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. They would look at the words of Jesus, if you are angry at your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And they interpreted that to mean that they were prohibited from serving in a military force. Eventually, after the Christianization of the Roman Empire, that started to change. And theologians really started to take a close look at what the Bible says about violence and tried to formulate a comprehensive theology that could allow for violence in certain circumstances where it seemed like that was the right thing to do. And what they settled on was something called just war theory, which a brief summary of it would be, if you are going to attack or if you're going to go to war, it has to be in defense of someone else's life or their liberty or something else of that kind of value. And it can't be a preemptive strike in order to gain, for example, territory or riches or wealth or something out of anger. It has to be in defense of that other party. And it can't be something that's extremely preemptive. It can't be a preemptive strike. And so the United States, in the way that it has conducted wars, a lot of times Christians will try to 
apply map just war theory onto what we're doing. And it works well in some cases. For example, we've got Nazis that are blowing through Europe and we can say that, oh, they're evil because of they're doing these things to the Jews in concentration camps and they're not respecting other people's sovereignty. So we can come in defense of them. But in other cases, it doesn't work quite so well. And there's something like the Mexican-American War which was between the United States and Mexico over a border dispute of Texas, or the Spanish-American War, which was over a border dispute with Cuba. And some of those things are what fall under the category of what people will call American colonialism. And so if we look at the 20th century specifically, we've got conflicts like the Korean War and the Vietnam War, where the United States would map the just war theory onto it saying we're defending the rights and the freedoms of people in Korea or Vietnam to stand against communism, which was sort of turned into the boogeyman of it's the atheist worldview. It's, you know, a terrible thing. We see the problems that it's causing in the Soviet Union, etc. And many of those criticisms could definitely be leveled at the Soviet Union, but it became such an intertwining of the Christian identity with this sort of warrior culture, this global police force sort of idea. And one of the interesting things that you look at is every time we go to war based on this just war theory, it tends to benefit the United States itself, either by us having greater security, by having buffer states between us and communist powers, or by preventing communist powers from existing close to us. One of the great failures of that is actually Cuba. And the United States actually worked very hard to get Castro out of Cuba, sometimes supporting dictators instead of communist party under under Castro in Cuba. And things like that happened in Latin America a lot as well, where they would rather have a military dictator than a communist revolution occur. And so as we see that just war theory, you know, maybe is a good idea in principle. We also see that in practice, it also gets unjustly or incorrectly mapped onto something that actually just is a benefit to the United States. And I want to bring this into the concept of our relationships with China right now, because this article sort of closes with an urgency of, you know, this is a war that might start. It might be a hot war with a major world power that starts within the next decade because of China's aggressions. And their urgency is, you know, if China tries to take over Taiwan or these Japanese islands or Indonesia, the United States needs to be ready to go in there with full force, overwhelming force, and end this thing as quickly as possible before it turns into a drawn-out conflict. And in the meantime, we need to build up our military capacity so that we never are in a position where we are militarily weaker than China in that area. And as I read that, and as I read that urgency, the the American patriot in me wants to rise up and say, yes, let's go get him. But the Christian citizen of heaven in me wants to say, China is a country that has more Christians in it than the United States does. And every person in China is made in the image of God. And every person in Japan and Taiwan and all these places that would be devastated by a war between two global superpowers would be absolutely crushed. And they are made in the image of God. And it, it makes me feel so desperately conflicted because, you know, at the same time, I want people to be able to live in the freedom that they have currently in those places. I want there to be greater freedom and freedom from the tyranny of the explicitly atheistic communist Chinese party. But at the same time, is the battle, 
is the war is the just fight for American influence and American position as a police state really worth that human toll and that human cost that we would see? Yeah, Taz, those are all excellent points. And I think we as Christians can't just say that this is a, a easy solution that we thought about for five minutes and just say, oh, that's it. It, it takes careful consideration and conversations like we have here. Uh, and so I really think this is an important thing to understand and I, and I love your point about the appropriate use of, of just war theory, that we can't just do what's best for America and then uh, claim it was just war theory in the end, which is, is never a good thing. Uh, we as Christians should always be honest and we should be apologists for the truth. And sometimes the truth is something that people don't agree with, but it is nonetheless the truth. So all excellent points. And we encourage all of you to join the conversation with us. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to tweet out, we are at Front Report on Twitter, or you can send us an email at thefrontporchreport at gmail.com. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can respond to this week's question, and I'll take a look at your replies and pin some of the top ones. Next week, we are going to be back with another episode of Discovery Bible Study, where we'll be finishing up Chapter 4, our Chapter 4, Part 2. And then after that, we'll see what else is happening in the world and be back with another episode of Middle Ground the week after that. Sam, I've been stir-frying up some takes today, and I've got a particularly juicy one for you. Oh, oh, I am hungry. Please give it to me. Well, this is a nice and hot take, and my question for you today is on the subject of bail bondsmen. Now, whenever you get arrested, you have the option to post bail in most nonviolent cases, and that allows you to get out of jail for a time and then it, the money basically ensures that you return to your court date. But there's a class of people called bail bonds, people that will basically, for a fee, post your bail for you, and they make a little profit off of the end of it. So what are your thoughts on that whole process? It's been called a racist system. Tell me what you think. Yeah, so it's really important to understand how they work. So, you know, for example, say you are charged with a crime, uh, and you are arrested. You have not been convicted of that crime. And so while you await your court date, you are typically held um, in a prison or jail of some sort in the municipality or county in which you were charged, typically. So the courts, realizing that this filled up the uh, prison system or jail system, were like, we need to get people out of here, but we can't just let them go because they might not come back. So they came up with this concept of uh, bail. And the point is you give us a certain amount of money, you know, and the judge determines the proportion of it based upon the crime. Uh, And then when you arrive at trial, you get that money back. And so it's basically a guarantee that you're going to come back after that. And so bail bondsmen, so say you get a hundred thousand dollar bail for a crime, they will take 10% of your, whatever it is. So say a hundred thousand dollars, so you give them 10000 Uh, They post that $100,000 for you 
then when you arrive at your court date, they of course get that back and they keep your $10,000. So it's a way for them to make money. You only pay 10,000 and maybe you don't have a hundred thousand, but that still gives you a chance to have some freedom, which is a good idea in, in theory, but what it's turned to in practice is, you know, jails being filled with poor people who can't afford to make bond or things like that. And it's interesting. And if you look at, you know, the system divide of, of people who are capable of making bail and those who do make bail and, and all these things, it, it breaks out pretty evenly among class lines and race lines, unfortunately, with uh, those who are, are white and those who are of higher socioeconomic status being able to post bond and those who are minorities or persons of color uh, or lower socioeconomic status persons being incapable of posting bond. Um, and so you have movements across the country that are, are changing things. You know, in New York, uh, for example, um, they have some bonds for petty crimes to be as low as one dollar, um, which is great. But even then, we're, we're reading, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Taz, about a dude who died in prison who hadn't been convicted of a crime who was being held on a one dollar bail because his family couldn't post it because of procedural red tape. And so it's this kind of weird system that we're holding people who are going to come back for their court date, who aren't a flight risk and things like that because of an old antiquated system that is, is not being used well for its intended purposes. And so I, I, you know, I think there's this, this movement, like we have to get rid of all of the bail system and then there's this movement we have to keep exactly the same and i think both of those are are two extremes of an end that are not appropriate to consider for this time i think the appropriate thing is we need to overhaul it and i don't know how that looks i know there that it could be an example of you know it goes before a, a jury panel or a judge panel and they say okay you're, you're not a flight risk so we're gonna let you go uh, but you have to come back for your court date uh, and then if you don't come back for that court date, there's an additional charge added, whatever that would be, uh, just to ensure that people would come back. But again, those would be particularly for nonviolent crimes uh, and, and petty misdemeanors. I think that would be more appropriate than, you know, punitively charging people who are in lower socioeconomic backgrounds and persons of color, by and large. Again, this is who it affects if we look at the metadata, not saying that like, necessarily courts are looking at it and being like, oh, you're you're a minority person. We're going to charge you more in bail. It, it's more looking at the metadata and then understanding the history of policing in America. And that can be a whole conversation in and of itself about how that ended up and how policies led to targeting those communities and, and all sorts of things. And how hard can you hear that dog in the background it's a it's a good old good old dog, but dang it, you could hear it. It's oh, all right. Uh, we're just gonna leave it in. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna leave it in. That's my neighbor's dog. His name is uh, I forgot his name. Oh no! Everybody, thank you for listening this week. We will catch you next time. Stay safe out there. Thank you all for joining us this week. Front Porch Report is a passion project by a group of people who love Jesus and want to spread his word. Our hosts are Taz Turner and Samuel Hinckley. Our theme song is If by Beautiful Eulogy. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and share this episode with your friends so that we can continue to spread the word. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, follow on Twitter where we are at Front Report or send us an email at thefrontporchreport at gmail.com. We'll catch you next week. In the meantime, stay safe out there. So because he uh, led blah, 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 blah. and you bring up the rideshare service, which is an interesting point. The NFL has stated that they uh, offer free rideshare services for all of their players. Is that correct? Why do you ask me? It's in your article. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I guess. Never mind. You can just cut that part out. The Mexican-American War, which was between the United States and Texas over the or the United States. And uh, to quote David Pakuda, all sins are... Jonathan Pakuda. What did I say? You said David. <laughs> you combined the two. Did I say David? You, you said DP. <laughs> this is going to sound... I'm trying to not phrase this as harsh as it's going to come out, so I'm going to erase everything I just said. Um, we're going to start over. <laughs>